I'm Jennifer Grayson, and this is the Uncivilized Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Uncivilized Podcast, where we are reconciling the modern urban existence with our innate human need for the natural world. I'm Jennifer Grayson, and thanks so much for joining me this first season as we really rethink our increasingly automated existence that it feels like we're hurtling toward, and how to explore and build a more fulfilling, more natural, and ultimately more authentically human life. And one of my goals for the show is for this exploration to be fun, not all doom and gloom. So I thought it might be fun to start off some of these shows by quickly sharing just one thing I've done in this this past week in my own life to uncivilize. I recently decided it was time to set one day uh, each week aside so that I can step away from work, from my computer, to actually get out there in nature and practice what I'm preaching. And so last week, I drove up to Pasadena near the San Gabriel Mountains to take a lunchtime foraging class with Chris Niergish. He was one of our guests earlier this season, and the class was so much fun. Wild radish seed pods are just starting to pop up in some places, uh, but the greens are everywhere, which I have recently learned to love. And so I harvested a huge bag of radish greens and came home and sauteed those up with a couple fried pastured eggs wolfed it down just in time to pick up my daughters from school. And so uh, I felt very proud of myself and that felt very satisfying and also delicious. It, you know, it's amazing that once you get a taste for wild greens and really how pungent they are and how different they are from anything you can get in the supermarket and really how good they make you feel, I've found myself really craving them in the week since. And so I think it's probably time to start making this more of a regular thing. So that's what I've been up to this week, along with a fantastic interview I recently taped with our guest today, Megan Kimball, who is the author of a book I highly recommend if you, like me, really want to eat outside of our hyper-industrialized food system, if you want to be part of changing that food system, and if you're a fan of Michael Pollan's books and that kind of experiential food writing and narrative nonfiction, which I really am. Uh, Megan's book is called Unprocessed. It came out in 2012. So it was really interesting to have this opportunity to check back with Megan after all these years to see how her life has changed since writing the book. She was only in her mid-20s when she wrote it. And, you know, to speak with her and find out how she's putting Unprocessed into practice all these years later. She's really a lot of fun. You're really going to like her. And so that's it for me. Thank you all for listening, for your amazing support, for your reviews so far. And I will be back next Monday with another exciting episode. I'm here with Megan Kimball, senior editor at Austin Monthly Magazine and the author of Unprocessed, My City-Dwelling Year of Reclaiming Real Food, a memoir of her year-long journey of eating only whole, unprocessed foods intertwined with the journalistic exploration of what unprocessed really means, why it matters, and how to afford it. The book was named a Southwest Book of the Year in 2015. Megan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to have you here, and I'm so glad we could finally coordinate our schedules. I know you just went through a crazy move, right? I did. I just moved from Tucson, where I lived for seven years and where much of Unprocessed takes place, to Austin, Texas. Wow. And so had you been to Austin before? I had, yeah. My sister and her family have lived here for four years, so I'd been here quite a bit and um, got an opportunity to work at the Austin Monthly, so um, it all came together. That's so cool. So tell me about, I'm really interested because you write about food and you've written this book that really delves into our food system. So like, what's your impression of Austin versus Tucson? Like, what's the food scene like in in Austin? What struck you the most? Yeah, I mean, they're so different, but um, I'm still sort of trying to wrap my head around what's happening in Austin food. I mean, there's a huge dining scene and culture here with these amazing chefs who are really doing farm to table, you know, practicing what they preach. Um, And in in Tucson, that's still kind of a struggle. It's still, there's still a lot of work being done connecting local farmers to local restaurants and markets, um, in part because growing in Southern Arizona is so difficult and people tend to be really spread out. Whereas in Central Texas, it's a really different 
agricultural scene. Um, and so there are a lot of farmers, there are a lot of urban farms in Austin, which has been really cool to see. Um, and that makes it, I think, a bit easier to connect growers with markets and chefs and people who want to eat that food. And then what's the shopping experience like? How hard is it to shop unprocessed in Austin? I know that's where, isn't, didn't Whole Foods begin in Austin? Yeah, Whole Foods began here. Um, but, you know, it's it's really similar. I think more and more, in more and more cities across the United States, it's easier to eat well because there are farmer's markets in almost every community or, you know, a community nearby. You can join a CSA. So I actually just joined a CSA in Austin um, and get my first pickup in a couple of weeks, which I'm really excited about. Um, you know, there's a co-op near my house in Austin called the Wheatsville Co-op. I was a member of the Tucson Co-op. Um, you know, a co-op is just basically a cooperatively owned grocery and they tend to be really conscious about their sourcing, where they get their food from. And so it's much easier to eat unprocessed when you go to a grocery store like that versus a big chain, um, because they don't have that same sort of mission and ethos around good food. Yeah, I, we actually have a great one here. Did I know you're from LA? Did you ever shop at Co-Opportunity? Do you know that store? I didn't. No, I grew up in LA, but I don't. I don't know that store. Okay, so you grew up in Pasadena, right? I did. Yep. Okay, nice. Uh, my mom. Well, she was in Pasadena up until recently. They just moved to yeah. Charleston, South Carolina. Oh dang. Um. Yeah, I know. Well, housing prices here in LA have gotten yeah. pretty out of control. That's a big difference between Austin and Tucson, for sure. <laughs> Austin's way more expensive. Yes. Yeah, I'm sure your food dollars went a lot farther mm -hmm. in, in Tucson, huh? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so anyway, oh, so Co-Opportunity in Santa Monica. Um, it's great. They have a huge bulk section. It's they just And their prices are pretty comparable. And I, I kind of feel like since Amazon bought Whole Foods, I'm like extra committed to supporting my local store, you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think that it sometimes feels more expensive to shop at a co-op or a sort of specialty grocery store. But I think if you can like buy bulk and, you know, sort of shop their sales, there are ways to do it that it really is comparable from going to, to going to a mass market place. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. And I want to get into how you shop and this, the whole thing of unprocessed <laughs> because I, you cover so much in this book and I was really unprepared for, I, I thought it was just going to be, I don't know what I expected. I thought it was going to be a book about, eating whole unprocessed foods. And as someone who kind of grew up eating that way, I didn't know what I was mm -hmm. going to learn. And I was astonished at how much I learned from, you know, like where salt comes from to you, you work and there's a whole chapter about the planned obsolescence of the, all the appliances we use <laughs> to do our food. And you go delve into alcohol and, and our whole meat system. And, and so it's really fascinating. I also just want to take a second to just applaud you and say, well done, because I, I learned so much from this book and it was so enjoyable to read too. Awesome. Thank you. So can we start at the beginning? Um, actually, let's start at the beginning of your book process. So I'm, I'm kind of always interested to ask this question of other authors just because I've been through the process too. So what, when you had this first idea for Unprocessed, what was your vision of what the book was going to be about? Like, what did you think the book was going to be about when you wrote the proposal or came up with the idea versus what do you think the book is about now? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, I mean, I had a pretty clear sense going into the book what it would, the sort of narrative trajectory, because I had committed to not eating processed food for a year. And so I sort of knew that that would be the shape of the book. Um, but I didn't realize, I think, how many sort of rabbit holes I would go down in terms of planned obsolescence and um, salt and some of the things that you mentioned that when you ask this seemingly simple question of what makes food processed, um, you find lots of different kinds of answers. So one answer is all food is processed, right? Cooking is a kind of process. So is, you know, milling grain. And so I had to decide where I wanted to draw the line. And the answer to that question is not so cut and dry. I mean, I think a lot of it depends on economy. You know, how much are you willing to spend on food and how much time do you have to prepare that food? You know, I was working full time. I was a graduate student and I wasn't like willing or able to be a full time sort of urban homesteader. So I naturally had to outsource a lot of my food preparation. Um, and the other thing, you know, I didn't expect to think so much about is sort of how we live in cities and how we, um, sort of navigate urban life. And so much of that is how we eat. And necessarily, we outsource many of our processes to other people, to farmers and cheesemakers and bakers. And I think it was figuring out where I wanted to draw the line. 
um, was a super interesting process that ha- had me, you know, considering gender and family and um, so many different things that I didn't really expect to consider. And so what stands out in your mind most now, like when you look back on the book, what are the things that you really remember? Um, Cause I know, you know what, so when did you write this? What year was it? Um, it was 2012. Yeah. <laughs> well, I had to think about that. Yeah, no, but it's, I, I know it's amazing how you like write a book and then just four years of your life go by, or, yeah. you know, six years yeah. now. But, um, yeah, I, at least for me, like my perspective has changed and they're only they're. I think it's kind of telling which things sort of stand out, I guess, as I think back on the process. So I'm just curious if and if there's not, that's totally fine. I just was wondering if there's like a chapter that really stands out in your mind or something that has really revolutionized the way you eat. Yeah, I mean, a big epiphany in my year that I talk about, you know, in the introduction, but it really happened like halfway through my year is this sort of realization that the money we spend mattered. So the money we spend on food matters. It shapes the food system. It creates um, sort of in, in aggregate the consumer demand that these large companies respond to. And that, that's like a sort of realization that has filtered into all aspects of my life in terms of how I think of myself as a consumer of all kinds. Um, but specifically with food, um, I think it's really empowering to think that you can help shape the food system by the things, the foods that you buy. Um, you know, there's this cliche about with your fork, but that's really true. I mean, I think more and more these large food, food corporations are not afraid of government regulation in part because of the administration that we have and have had in the past. Um, but they are afraid of their consumers. You know, they're willing to change their methods because of consumer demand. And that's proved true since my book came out that, um, you know, there have been articles that show that demand for processed food is declining. And so companies are figuring out ways to sell us different kinds of foods that we want to eat. Um, so I think that that, like how you spend your money matters was a big takeaway for me. Um, there's a study I quote a lot from local first Arizona, which is a, the local business advocacy group that if everyone in a community, the size of Tucson, which is about 500,000 people shifted 10% of their spending to local businesses together, we would create $140 million in new revenue for the city. And that's applicable anywhere, you know, and that's applicable with any kinds of things that you're buying. And it's 10%. So if you're spending $100 a week, that's 10 bucks. Um, you can really create a big impact in your community. And that, I think, has really stuck with me. Do the people around you, like, what do they think about it? Do you see the buy local movement actually growing? So I think the buy local movement has changed and grown in really interesting ways. Um, one example is in Tucson, there's a brewery called 1055 Brewing, and they did an equity crowdfunding campaign. Uh, maybe a year ago. And so I was able to buy into this brewery um, by a, an ownership stake, which is the equity, um, just as a regular consumer, as, a, as an unaccredited investor. <clears throat> and that's a way that this sort of buy local program has really grown. People like me used to be locked out of equity and ownership in, in, our, in co- companies within our own communities. And that enabled me and lots of people in my community to support the kinds of businesses that we want to see grow and thrive. So it doesn't just have to be how am I going to spend my money on a Saturday afternoon when I'm shopping? You know, you don't have to go shopping to support local businesses and local economies. Yeah. Well, that's cool. So tell me about the beer. Uh, is it a co-op or you're just an investor? And how does that, like, do you get a return of <laughs> cases of beer? Yeah. Like, how does it work? That sounds so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's this thing that started out of the Jobs Act that President Obama passed. And so, you know, you know of Kickstarter, these crowdfunding campaigns, but largely when you contribute to a crowdfunding campaign, you just sort of get a a prize or a sort of, you know, if it's a, um, a barber shop, you get a discount on your service maybe, but this, this, um, new regulation allowed people to buy equity in companies. So you didn't used to be able to buy equity in companies except through the stock market, unless you had a net worth of, I think it was like over $250,000. So basically you had to be really wealthy to buy equity in any kind of company outside of the stock and, market. And what was, sorry to interrupt you, but what was the reason behind that? Why did you have to be wealthy? I, I think it was to sort of um, prevent, it was to sort of, um, what's the way to phrase it? Like, the reason for that was to allow sort of, quote unquote, sophisticated investors access to more sophisticated offerings and people who don't have a lot of financial literacy to like protect them from investing in, you know, some swindler who's around, coming around raising money for his brewery who never ends up opening a brewery and just takes your money and runs. So right. I think the idea the idea originally was to sort of protect unsophisticated investors from fraud. But 
and how that sort of changed is that it meant that a lot of people were locked out of investing in their own communities, which meant that, you know, a lot of um, community development was decided by banks and, and capital funders um, and not by people who live in that community. And so equity crowdfunding is one way that I think it opens up investing in community development to just like ordinary people who really care about the places that they live. Right. Okay. So tell me about the beer. How does that work now? To the beer. So it's sort of like buying stock in a company. So I, you know, I spent $1,000 and I paid for some share of the company. Um, and as they grow, then my share will also grow. But it's, it's a sort of slow investing kind of ethos. So um, there's this group called Slow Money, which sort of coined that term of slow investing, which is the idea is that you don't get a quarterly return. You don't get an annual return. You might get a return in five years or 10 years. And one return that you get is that you get a really great brewery down the street from where you live or you know, near where you work. Um, and so the idea is to sort of get us out of this like quarterly growth model um, and investing in things that have more to do with quality of life. Right. That's so interesting you bring that up because I think you know, companies are so beholden to their investors. And when you have returns that happen that quickly, it's so reactionary. And so a company can't have like a long-term vision for where it wants to go and how it wants to fit into the community, right? Yeah, exactly. And it creates this sort of growth above all else mindset. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. And so um, I'm interested to know too, because I know you delved in, you delved into beer making in your book or was it mead making? Mm -hmm. I tried to make mead very unsuccessfully, and then I talked to a few brewers and winemakers. Okay, so explain what mead is, because I don't think everyone knows. Yeah, so mead is just fermented honey water. Um, it's thought to be one of the first alcohols that humans consumed. Um, you know, I think it was probably made by accident. You leave honey and water out, and it will naturally ferment, because, you know, then as now, there's wild yeast in the air, and it will get into that liquid and ferment it and create alcohol. Um so it's really easy to make, you know, you just have to get raw honey that's not pasteurized and mix it with warm water and then, you know, do a few sort of sanitary things and then kind of let it sit. Um, so I did make alcohol. It just wasn't very tasty. Um, <laughs> what did it and, taste and, like? Uh, it was just kind of like sweet fizzy water. It was like not interesting at all. <laughs> okay. Um, but I think, so one thing that sort of trying to process my own alcohol taught me is that, I mean, alcohol is super interesting because it's a really old process. You know, humans have been making beer and wine for thousands of years, but it requires actually a fair amount of infrastructure. I mean, if you're going to make wine, you need equipment and you need um, grapes, you know, you need a lot of different things to make wine. And so that was one where for me, I felt really good outsourcing it to people in my community who were really passionate and, and committed to learning how to make the best wine they could out of Arizona grapes or someone who was making, you know, brewing wheat grown in Southern Arizona into beer to be consumed in Southern Arizona. So I feel like um, that was one where learning how like alcohol to me was an example of why humans form communities because some, you know, specialization allows us to not do everything on our own. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you're not making beer anymore or mead anymore. I'm not making beer okay. anymore. I'm like really happily outsourcing. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I feel that way too. And I also, I talked uh, for the show, I spoke with an urban homesteader whom I know, and he was like, I used to make my own beer, but you know, now I'm like in my fifties and do I really need that much beer sitting around when there's so many other people in LA who make it well. And I can just kind of like not be forced to drink all of that and not fit into my clothing anymore. <laughs> right, totally. And I feel like that was such a good thing that I learned during my year of like, you don't have, I didn't have to do it all on my own. Um, you know, there are people in my community who are making really good bread. Like that was a sort of wormhole I went down of learning how to make bread and learning about wheat and how wheat is processed. And then I found this really amazing baker in Tucson who was doing, um, you know, slow fermented breads with artisan local grains. And I could just buy them. <laughs> I didn't have to worry about becoming a good baker. And so I feel like that, like connecting to my community in that way was a, a huge lesson of unprocessed. Yeah. And I also, I think about that bread chapter too, and I don't want to reveal too much about your book, but can we just share some of like a few of the astonishing things that 
you discovered? Because I remember the whole thing about the rancid flour. Can you talk about that? Yeah. And the bread? yeah. I, I mean, that blew my mind because I'm someone who actually yeah. does like to bake bread and I make pancakes from scratch for the girls and I have two young daughters. And um, mm-hmm. yeah. And then I was like, oh my God, it's all, it's all rancid. Yeah. Yeah, that blew my mind too when I learned it. And I remember being like, how is this not known? It seems so fundamental. Um, but basically, so um, a kernel of, of wheat has a bran, a germ, and an endosperm. And when you mill it, there are oils in that grain of wheat. And those oils are activated by oxygen. And so that flour starts to go rancid. And so it's not rancid like how milk or dairy goes rancid, where it's like, you know, bad to eat. It just means that um, it loses its nutrients. So it becomes a sort of um, like old stale food when you mill it. And so for a long, very long time, most communities had a mill in them and you would go take your flour to the mill or, you know, the general store person would take flour to the mill and sell it within a week or so. And today what happens is, you you know, you grow bread in wherever you grow in Oklahoma and it's sent to Minnesota to be milled. And then it goes back to Chicago through a a wheat exchange. And then maybe it appears in a supermarket in California. Um, And so there's a huge lag between when a grain is milled and when you consume it. And because of that, the nutrient profile just plummets. So um, that was a a crazy thing for me to learn, that there's a huge difference in terms of um, the nutrients in grain depending on when you mill it. And, you know, as um, sort of gluten intolerance and celiac disease have become more widespread and more well-known, I think that one really important thing to pay attention to is it's not just, you know, grain is not grain is not grain. It it very much depends on how it is milled and processed um, as to how our bodies digest it. So, you know, I have, um, I talked to this baker in Tucson who um, makes these slow fermented breads, which means that they're, you know, he uses wild yeast. And so it's the dough ferments for 24 to 36 hours. And those yeasts, because they have so long, they help break down a lot of the glutens and proteins in bread. And so they're much easier to digest. And that's how humans ate bread for thousands of years before companies like Wonder Bread came along and introduced these quick ferments, which take something like five hours, um, and which is much harder for our bodies to digest. Yeah. Wow. I know. I think that's so... It's it's interesting. I always hear about... Um, I have a lot of people, obviously I'm in LA, so everyone is gluten, <laughs> gluten intolerant. But, you know, a lot of people say when they go overseas or they go to travel in Europe or, you know, other parts of the world, a lot of times they can eat bread. And I often think, well, there's also the pesticides that we use in this country. So that's a whole mm-hmm. other topic we could delve into. But yeah, I mean, the preparation, they those places have been basically baking bread the way humans have been doing it for thousands and thousands of years and they're processing it correctly. And so, right. Yeah. Um, have you, did you explore other countries at all or was this, were you primarily focusing on the U S I primarily focused on the U S I mean, as you know, I drew a lot on my experiences living in Nicaragua, um, where I lived in this tiny town for a year and experienced this whole different way of eating. Um, but mostly I was U.S. focused in part just because the U.S. food system is so vastly complicated as it is that um, confronting, you know, just thinking about the supply chain from produce coming into Mexico was daunting enough, um, you know. Talk, forget, talk about that for a little bit. Because- yeah. So, so I was living in Tucson, which is obviously just north of the U.S.-Mexico border. And early on in my book research, I was sort of invited along on this research trip to go to these pro, um, produce broker brokerage warehouses at the border just north of the um, Mariposa Port of Entry in Nogales. And so I got to go down and talk to produce brokers who buy, you know, thousands and thousands of pounds of produce from Mexico and ship it north into the United States. Um, So in the winter, 70% of the produce on U.S. supermarket shelves comes from Mexico, and much of that goes through Nogales. So it's this huge superhighway of food. Um, And just seeing the scale of it was staggering. You know, so I remember I went into these warehouses full of like watermelons and they're, you know, a football field size stack floor to ceiling with watermelon. And, you know, it being sort of inconceivable to, in, inconceivable to me how all that food would ever find its way to an eater. You know, I mean, it's just a, an immense amount of perishable food, highly perishable food. You know, and the way that that system survives is based on refrigeration and semi-trucks, which is all basically a way of saying petroleum. So it's this very sort of tenuous system. But it's really the backbone of how we get fresh food in the U.S. is um, these refrigerated warehouses that are 
and that produce is put into semi trucks. So it requires actually a huge amount of waste and a huge amount of fossil fuels. So what happens, Megan, what happens to all those watermelons? Like some of them don't make it into U.S. grocery stores, right? Yeah, correct. I mean, it's worth saying that the people who work in these produce warehouses are really good at what they do. I mean, for the amount of food coming through that space in a short amount of time, they've managed to get most of it to eaters, which to me is remarkable. Um, but even, you know, 1% of a huge amount of food is still a lot of food. You know, 1% of thousands of tons of food represents a lot of wasted produce. And so a lot of that goes into the landfill near Rio Rico. Um, and that landfill has some of the highest methane emissions of any landfill in the U.S. because of all that fresh produce that gets thrown away. So there are groups, you know, working to rescue some of that produce and get it to people who need it the most. Because ironically, southern Arizona has a um, one of the highest rates of food insecurity um, in the country. And so there are people who are working to get that produce to, you know, food banks and to people who need it. But a lot of it's thrown away. Yeah. Wow. And I want to talk about the whole food insecurity aspect of this, too, because that's a whole nother area you explore in the <laughs> book. Um, but, you know, first, because you're so passionate, clearly, about food and, and how deep all of these threads go, can we talk a little bit about your background and your history? Like, what do you think it is about your upbringing and your childhood that made you so interested in all of this? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I was raised by two scientists, basically. My mom's an earth science teacher and my dad's a physics professor. Um, so I've always sort of been interested in like how things work, like how things move around and fit together. Um, and I also grew up very sort of acutely aware of global warming and climate change, in large part because of my dad sort of teaching my sister and I about environmental issues at a very early age. And so I, I've always been interested to write about environmental issues, but always kind of had a hard time finding a way in. Like, I don't have a background in science. I didn't study science. I studied English. Um, and food for me was this sort of light bulb moment of, you know, everybody eats. And agriculture is something that is um, ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And so it's a subject that has sort of captivated me in the sense that it's somewhat accessible um, and, it's, and everyone has a relationship to food. So... I mean, I started Unprocessed in part because I had read so much about food and was sort of thinking a lot about food, but hadn't found, like, a lot of it felt inaccessible to me. Um, so we were talking about Michael Pollan earlier. I mean, I read Michael Pollan's Omnivore's Dilemma and In Defense of Food and was really inspired by both of those books. But I also was like, I don't know how to put this into practice in my daily life because I'm a graduate student. I earn $17,000 a year. I don't have a garden. You know, I don't know how to garden. Um, and so a lot of what I was interested in in this book and that I'm interested in sort of generally as a writer is like knowing what we know, like, what do we do? <laughs> like knowing we know what we know about climate change, know, knowing what we know about the agricultural system in the U.S. and how detrimental it is to our water and our land and our health. Like, what do we do about that? Um, you know, one answer to that is to be politically engaged and try to change the farm bill. But Another answer to that is to like look at our own lives and our own ways of eating and try to change on an individual level. Yeah, I know. It's so, it, yeah, a hundred percent. I agree. Yeah. So, I mean, did your, were your parents food activists? I mean, what did you eat growing up? Were you unprocessed growing up? Yeah. So both my parents are vegetarians. So they, my mom is definitely very, has always been very conscious about what she was eating. Um, I mean, I wouldn't call her hippie, but she was sort of of that granola era of, you know, making bread from scratch and, um, you know, making granola from scratch. And um, so she is a great cook. And I learned a lot from her in terms of just how to make kind of easy meals based on whole foods. So, um, you know, cooking does not have to be an arduous affair. You can, you know, she managed to feed a family of four and she worked full time. So she'd come home and she'd cut up some vegetables and cook some rice and make some tofu and there was dinner. Um, so I think, I certainly grew up in a household that um, good food was a priority. You know, we ate together every night. Um, and so that sort of is, has always been my norm. And so because you said you're a vegetarian and we're talking about unprocessed, did you grow up eating a lot of meat substitutes? No. So I think my parents never were into, um, you know, yeah, meat substitutes. We ate like tofu and we ate a lot of beans and we ate, um, you know, foods that ha naturally have protein, but we didn't eat a lot of the sort of, 
whatever veggie sausage patties. And I'm grateful for that because those foods are incredibly processed as it turns out, you know, they're made of some of the most processed ingredients you can find. Um, I'm actually not a vegetarian now and I wasn't raised vegetarian. Both my parents are vegetarian, but they I think made a conscious decision to give my, my sister and me meat to sort of let us decide on our own. So, um, I eat meat maybe once a week now, um, which is, nice to have that option and nice to be able to, especially as a food writer, to partake in different kinds of um, eating experiences. But I'm really picky about the kinds of meat that I'll eat. Yeah. So let's talk about that because you really delve into meat in the book. How did, what did your parents think when you said you were going to slaughter a sheep? Book research. <laughs> yeah. They were like, okay, great. <laughs> like, don't send pictures. Yeah. Um, I mean, they were really supportive, I think, throughout the journey of book writing. Um, but slaughtering a sheep for me was really eye-opening and revealing. Um, you know, I didn't really know what to expect going into it. Um, but I think, like, experiencing what it takes to butcher meat in a way that felt thoughtful and sort of respectful was a really important journey in my life as a meat eater. You know, like, I think I had had this sort of this fear of meat because, um, you know, rightfully so, the way that we produce industrial meat in this country is terrifying. It's it's um, really also not transparent. It's opaque. You don't really know what's happening. This this is how I felt. Is I felt like with industrial meat production in this country, I didn't know what was happening, but I knew it was bad. <laughs> and so for me, that to be able to see an alternate way to, to raise and butcher meat was really eye-opening and important to know that there is a way to consume animals in a way that's thoughtful and a way that respects their lives and respects the lives of the people who raise them. Um, and it's sort of congruent with how humans have been eating meat for a very long time, thousands of years. Yeah, it's well, it's so interesting. I mean, I've, I was telling my husband about that chapter in your book. And, you know, I talk to a lot of people who are passionate environmentalists and who want to change our food system and also feel very strongly about um you know, sourcing ethical meat or becoming hunters themselves, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. because then you take responsibility for what you consume. And it really does. It changes how you, you, you know, you don't just like go to the store and buy a package of chicken and just like you eat less of it because you value mm -hmm. it. And and but there are still a lot of people. I mean, my husband was like, oh, my God, I that's horrible. I would never kill a, a little sheep. And I'm like, but you eat, <laughs> you eat me yeah. all the time. And so there's this huge disconnect. I'm just wondering, like, did you get a lot of pushback about that chapter? And do you see people's attitudes changing about that? Because I almost see a world where we so don't want to connect to the human experience of the fact that we were hunters or even raising meat and having to be responsible for that meat, that we would rather go toward a future where we're 3D printing fake meat. So right. how do you feel yeah, about I mean, that? I know that's a big question yeah. I just laid on you. No, no, it's such an interesting question. I mean, for me, it was really important that if I was going to be a meat eater, I needed to reckon with what that required, what that entailed. And and part of that is learning to value meat. And so when you buy meat from the farmer's market or when you, you know, hunt it yourself or when you um, get it from a local rancher, it's really expensive, you know, in time and energy and also just in money. But that means that you sort of eat it less and you ideally value it more. So, you know, to me, and meat before kind of in the 1950s was a sort of once a week affair. You, you made it on a big Sunday family dinner. It was a special occasion. And it's still like that in many parts of the world. Um, the ubiquity of meat in the U.S. is something that is super concerning and very weird to me that it's just sort of like you go to the grocery store and you get a chicken salad and the chicken is like a crouton. It's like not even thought of as an animal, living animal. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, I think problematic. And so what I wanted to do is sort of like reframe and uh, reboot my relationship to the value of meat. Um, but I did certainly get, a, a, that's the chapter that I've gotten the most pushback on. And it's mostly from people who believe that eating animals is morally and environmentally wrong. And I'm like, I, I think those people are certainly entitled to their beliefs, but, um, you know, animals and meat consumption have been a part of our agricultural systems for since as long as there were agricultural systems. So I think it's sort of, um, impossible not to reckon with the presence of animals in our diets and, and on our farms. Um, 
And even before and agriculture, un- I should say. Yeah. I mean, they've been part exactly. of our... Exactly. I mean, we're hunter-gatherers. Right. Precisely. And, ma- and maintaining those landscapes too, and all those <laughs> animals that actually grazed on grass as opposed to, you know, being fed corn. So that it's been part of our ecosystem even before agriculture, right? Yeah, for sure. And so in lots of ways, I mean, I, you know, I was raised by vegetarians. I certainly support people and I think it's really valid people who decide to just opt out of meat eating entirely. But I think it's a much more complicated thing to be a, like a conscious meat eater in a modern society. And I wanted to grapple with that of like, what does that look like? And what does that require? And I still, you know, sometimes I find myself out to dinner and I like accidentally order something that has meat. And I'm like, Oh, I didn't really mean to be eating meat today. Um, and so it's hard. It's really complicated and it's really a hard thing to grapple with. And I, and as a writer, that's like much more interesting to me. Yeah. And I will say anyone interested in exploring this further, because we could do a whole nother podcast episode about yeah, that. For sure. Just read that chapter in your book because you really do go into the nuance of, you know, the ecological impacts and, mm-hmm. um, you know, our the food system and the industrialization of our uh, how we raise meat too. So, and you do mm-hmm. a brilliant job. So yeah, Thanks. I'm just going to tell everyone to go read that chapter. <laughs> um, and, yeah. but I do want to ask you, so how, what do you, how do you eat meat now then? So are you involved in, do you slaughter animals anymore for your own? Consumption? I don't, okay. yeah, I don't really only sort of as a lack of time just because, you know, I work full time and, um, I like to do things outside of work. <laughs> um, and so, um, What I try to do, and I think what the meat chapter taught me is to like really respect and honor people who do that as their professions, people who raise like ranchers who raise animals and decide to not sell them into the commodity marketplace, but to sort of butcher them or take them to a local slaughterhouse and and really see that end to end. I like really respect those people because I I like I physically know how hard it is to slaughter an animal. Um, And so what I try to do is I try to buy meat at the farmer's market or from a co-op or another store that sources from a local farmer. So a farmer or rancher. So, you know, I'm still buying it just like a consumer, but um, I really go out of my way to try to spend more money on it and support people who are, who are making a living, you know, caring for animals in a different way. Yeah. And, and eat a lot less of it too. Yeah, exactly. And that means that mostly, you know, I eat tofu. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I, you know, what's great about your book too, is that at the end of every chapter, you have this wonderful section where you kind of sum up your findings and then give actionable tips, how people can, you know, take what you've learned and put it into their own life. And so I, I, it's great. You have that at the end of your meat chapter too. And I would definitely encourage everyone to go look at that as well. So Megan, I have a couple more questions I really want to ask you. One is about before we leave the meat subject, this is Mm -hmm. something I'm just so curious about. When you talk about slaughtering the sheep, you said we used every part of the animal and we baked bread in the stomach. Can you just tell me what that was? Because I've never heard that before. Yeah, I mean, I actually don't really remember the the recipe or how that happened. But you, um, I I mean, I think it's a very, very old way of making bread. But you basically make dough. You make dough like any other way you would make bread. And you can bake it inside of the stomach. And it makes it really like moist and... um, kind of adds those fats and flavors into the bread. Um, so I, I'm sure there are recipes out there. I don't recall the one that we used, but um, I think it's like a very, it's a way of sort of, again, using the whole animal. I mean, we like, it's kind of graphic to talk about what we like cleaned out the intestines that we made rope out of them. We, um, I mean, every single part, we made little like satchels from some of the fur and the, um, the hoofs. So there were so many, there are so many ways that you can, you know, use and process an animal. And and lots of that has been forgotten. I mean, it's sort of very ancient and old knowledge that used to be sort of passed down through societies. And it's something that I certainly never knew about. Um, I would be curious to know if you searched on Google what you might find about cooking bread in the stomach. Right. Or like a Pinterest post. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, luckily, there are are lots of cookbooks out there now sort of nose to tail eating of really like using the whole animal, because that's part of what is so wasteful about the way that we consume meat is that we just use these prime cuts and we don't even, we don't eat the um, intestines. We don't eat the, um, we don't use the intestines. We don't eat the um, organs. And those are incredibly nutritious foods that, you know, lots of cultures still eat. Yeah. It's it's fascinating, the whole history behind it. And I think it's so telling that you just use the word graphic too, because for most of history, no one thought of this as a graphic thing. No, it was just a part of our daily lives, you know, and I think, um, kind of making that those processes more 
um, transparent and obvious to everyday eaters who are used to, yeah, like buying chicken wrapped in styrofoam um, is an important way to, to rethink about eating meat. Yeah. Yeah. So fascinating. I, that chapter, I really, I love that chapter. Um, so I know we don't have a lot of time yet left, but I do want to ask you two more big questions. Uh, one is about food insecurity, because I know I said I wanted to ask you about that. So I'm going to ask you your own question, which I thought was so brilliant in the book, which is, so what is it about, and forgive me if I'm paraphrasing you, but what is it about mm -hmm. upbringing that determines whether you go to the dollar menu or you buy a dollar bag of beans. Do you remember yeah, writing that? Good, yeah, I do. Sometimes people quote my book and I'm like, I wrote that? Yeah. <laughs> that um, was pretty good. Did I answer it in the book? Because it's such a good question. <laughs> no, it was kind of like a, a question that you had posed about you know, yeah. delving into your own upbringing. And it's that chapter where you go and you decide to uh, you know, see if you can go unprocessed for a whole week on food stamps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think so much of it is like cooking literacy. So I feel really lucky that I grew up in a home where, you know, my mom cooked, I had parents that cooked. Um, and a lot of people don't, and they don't get that education at school. And so it's very easy to grow up in today's America to be 20 or 25 or 30, and have no idea how to cook a basic meal for yourself. And so I think that's a huge part of the problem, which is why we have the dollar menu is you it's Wednesday night at seven o'clock. And if you don't know how to cook, what else are you going to do? Um, you're going to go buy a frozen meal at the supermarket, or you're going to go somewhere um, and have someone else prepare you food. And so, I mean, I think a lot of it is just culinary education and cooking education. And I see it more and more of that, of that the realizing that importance of, um, you know, it's great to join a CSA, but it's not at all helpful if you don't know what to do with those foods once you get them home. And so I see more and more cooking classes popping up, you know, different kinds of cooking classes, um, cooking classes that are taught out of like churches for low income people, cooking classes that are taught in schools um, for kids. So I think that there's so many different ways to in involve people in food. And I think it's just like empowering people to, you know, cooking is not that hard. Um, and a lot of it's trial and error. Um, if you're a low income person, then you don't really have the bandwidth or the financial resources to try and fail. And so I think it's like creating those opportunities for people to learn how to deal with a turn up when, you know, dinner is not dependent on that. Yeah. It, there's so much lost cultural history. I mean, we're, now mm -hmm. we see it as such a socioeconomic issue that like if you're privileged, then you have this knowledge. But there was a time not long ago when, you know, if you were poor in this country, you had a backyard garden and you, ate, yeah, exactly. you know, you knew how to saute up, um, mm -hmm. you know, turnip greens and like eat every part of what you grew and, and you knew how to can things. And it was just, that's what you did if you were poor. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it, how, you know, how do we bridge that gap? Like, how do we relearn what we've lost? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't really know, except that to just sort of, um, that's such a good question. <laughs> um, I mean, I think, Unfortunately, in that example of like it used to be that when you were poor, you you were resourceful and, and cooked and grew your own foods. And now it's sort of the opposite, because if you are poor, you work three jobs and you are um, you don't have time or energy to do those kinds of at home processes yourself. And so you sort of have to rely on someone else. So a lot of that is is just tied up with wages in this country and how low wages are. And, um, you know, one reason that wages are so low is that food is so cheap. So. Um, it's a sort of vicious cycle of, of low wages, cheap food. Um, and so I think getting out of that, realizing that food is important, it is to be valued. And so um, it's worth more money than we pay for it. I mean, a, a, a stat that I quote in the process is that eaters in the U.S. spend a smaller disposable fraction of their income on food than any other developed country. So in the U.S., we spend about 6% of our disposable income on food versus like 20% in Europe. So that like food should, food, like, food should cost money. We should value food and we should spend money on food. But the other side of that is that people need to make enough money that they can afford to buy good food. Yeah, no, that's so true. And I, also, I think the perception needs to change that we kind of pride ourselves on cheap food. Like I see yeah. people even who have plenty of um, income to spend on good food pride themselves. They're like, well, I went to Costco and I got, you know, look, yeah. how, <laughs> look how many turkey patties I got for this. And I'm like, in other countries, they would laugh at that. Like, you want to spend good money on good food that you put into your body. And, but I, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's a very bizarre cultural norm. Yeah. 
<laughs> we've got a, a long way to go. Um, well, so that brings me to my last question, my last big question about kind of your vision to the future, because this of everything in your book, uh, and there's so much, you know, it, your book is just peppered with like these sentences that I'm like, wow, like I have like mm -hmm. circled in stars around them. And um, but this one really stands out to me, especially as we're talking about this podcast and, um, you know, where we are at this point in human history. But you say uh, you're talking about the fact that you made salt, you know, you delved into me, mm -hmm. then you feel a little silly for like going through this whole process of learning where salt comes from. Um, you say, I feel a little silly for having made salt, but it's also making salt that shows me that it is human to want to manipulate the world. We found scattered stands of wild grains and we arranged them into productive rows. We found honeybees filling up combs with nectar. So we built boxes and brought the bees to us. But an inconvenient truth of this human penchant to play with the world's components is that it usually doesn't know how to stop itself. And then you go on to talk about how, you know, we've transformed corn into corn syrup and flour and salt and a thousand other ingredients into Twinkies. And so I want to ask you, is there, is there a point in our human history where you think we should have stopped tinkering? And is <laughs> there, is, I know this is a big question, and is there a place where you would like to see us stop or, you know, how you would like to see us reform our systems and what you would like to see in the future? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, and it's a big question. And I'm going to give you like a little answer and I'll see where that goes. Okay. <laughs> um, which is that like when I, at the beginning of my book, when I was trying to figure out where to draw the line, like what makes food process, I sort of stuck with this like intuitive sense of, um, which came from a line from Mr. Rogers of all people, which is there is a difference between things people make and things that are made. And so to me, it was like, what are foods that people make or can make or have made for thousands of years? And what are processes that like I can understand without consulting a chemistry textbook or, um, you know, the internet and reading a long article about how um, high fructose corn syrup is made. And so I think it's a sort of intuitive sense of, okay, I understand how grain could be milled and baked into bread. That's like a pretty easy process for me to understand. I don't understand how craft cheese is made. Like I just don't see that in my head right now. And so to me, it's like too far. That's too much. Um, you know, the, the counterpoint, of course, is that a lot of these sort of tinkering that we've made have made our food supply much more secure and gotten calories to people who need it. So, um, you know, there is something to be said for craft cheese, which can, you know, live on your shelf for two years. Um, but I think rare, let's not, that's, there are rare circumstances when that's what we need. Mostly what we need are foods that are sort of, intuitively made by people. So yogurt is another good example. You know, you ferment um, milk into something that is a, a different substance that is more, um, and is less perishable. You know, yogurt stores longer than just um, milk. Um, another really good example is pasteurization of milk. I sort of delve into that um, conundrum in a chapter about milk. You know, and there are lots of people who say that we should be drinking raw milk, but pasteurization was something that vastly increase the safety of our food supply. So people were dying right, from drinking milk before we figure out pasteurization. And that's something that allowed um, the food supply to be safer and more people, particularly young children who need milk, to, um, to have access to it. And it made it cheaper. So I think there are some processes that were sort of, if you're, there's this given trade is if you're going to live in an industrialized society, if you're going to live in an urban place like I do, you have to make trade-offs. You can't, you know, it would be the way I eat would be really different if I lived on a farm, but I don't. And so I think I, it's like, you have to make trade-offs for living in an urban industrialized society. And maybe pasteurization is one of those trade-offs. Right. Um, right. So Cause the real problem was that there was so much overcrowding in cities to begin mm -hmm. with. And there was a transportation issue. I mean, not necessarily, mm -hmm. if they'd come up with a way to actually raise cows in a healthy manner in an urban environment, there might not have been the same need for pasteurization. Exactly. You know, but so knowing that, like going forward, the fact that we are becoming a more industrialized world, like then what, what's the best way forward? Knowing that there are going to be some compromises, like what would be, and I know we don't have a ton of time. So like, what's your hope? Yeah. I mean, I think a couple of things is like one, I think everyone sort of needs to learn where to draw the line for themselves, like to make, to make, make it a line that you draw, that it's an active decision that you are going to continue to keep Doritos in your life, but not, you know, blueberry yogurt, whatever the decision is. 
Um, but I think it's so easy to be a mindless eater today that you just, there's so much food and it's everywhere and it's ubiquitous and it's cheap. It's so easy to just like eat without thinking about it. So my hope is that people sort of are more thoughtful about what they consume. But I also think, you know, on the, the grander vision is that there's this sort of wholesale change in how our food system works. So a big part of that is the farm bill. I mean, the farm bill is the reason that organic broccoli costs more than um, processed corn. So that's, that's the only reason that that is true. And if we change the way that we subsidize food in this country, we could make good, fresh food available to a whole lot more people. And we could also make farmers, um, we could make farming a much more lucrative and sustainable profession. Um, so I think that there's a lot that we could do on a policy level. So there's, you know, chicken and egg there of um, how do we sort of begin that change and one way is to act, you know, use our power as consumers to say, I, I'm like, I'm not willing to participate in a society that makes products like Doritos. So I'm going to not buy them. And to think of it as like a boycott, it's like a political action to not buy foods that are damaging our health, that are damaging our environment, that are damaging um, our agricultural systems and our water to say like, no, I will not partake in that system and to opt into a better way of eating. I think that's also can be incredibly political and also very empowering. Well said. And what can people do at the big picture level who really want to get involved? Yeah. I mean, I think it's like a it, uh, sort of follows the trend that we've seen since 2016 of, you know, being more engaged politically. So, you know, what is, what is your city and city council doing to enable, for example, urban agriculture? Um, what is your state doing to help uh, local food, um, schools source local food? You know, there are policies in place that either make that easier or make it hard. Um, what is your state senator doing on a national level to um, perhaps um, send more money to organic growers or to um, local agriculture? So there are lots of ways that people, I think, can get involved politically. Um, and then also, I think that, you know, the big starts with the small is just, changing the way you eat, changing the way your friends eat, going to farmer's markets and spending your money in a different way. So are you writing another book next or are you running for office? <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I think book and then office. I think that's the plan. <laughs> do, you have a, do you have an actual plan for your next book? I am working on working on a plan. Yeah, I have an idea and I just kind of need to get it rolling. Okay. Well, I hope you'll come back on the show when that is rolling. Uh, I would love to. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you today, Megan. Where can people follow you on social media? Where can people buy Unprocessed? Give us the whole yeah, rundown. So, yeah, they can go to my website, which is just MeganKimball.com and I have links to my Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all those fun outlets. Um, and then my book is, you know, available most places that books are sold. So you could go to a local bookstore and um, spend your money supporting a local business. Great. And we will put links to that um, up on the website. Yeah, it was such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. So much fun, Megan. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher Radio so you don't miss the next one. And please leave us a rating and review. If you want to talk more about this episode or have an idea for a future show, head over to my Instagram page. That's at Jennifer Grayson one. As with every episode, the resources and links for this show are available at jennifergrayson.com, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, which comes out once a month. Our theme music is by composer Paul Damian Hogan. That's it for me, and I'll see you next Monday with a new episode.